This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, everyone. I'm Rian Campbell from Stories of Wynn, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Liz Heller. She is currently an associate professor of pharmacology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, where her lab studies gene regulatory mechanisms that underlie psychiatric disease. Thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Dr. Heller. Thanks for having me, Rian. It's great to be here. Yeah, um, I'm really excited for this talk. I've uh, followed your career, I think my whole uh, research career. So I'm really excited to hear more about your experiences. Um, I guess we kind of begin usually by asking, you know, how you first got interested in neuroscience and what kind of made you decide to uh, pursue a career in research? Yeah, thanks. It's funny. I followed your career too, <laughs> as you know. Um, right. So, so I was fortunate to start doing some bench work as a high school student. Um, so I got into the lab as kind of a youngster in a, in a uh, microbiology lab. And um, I just really liked being in the lab. I, that was sort of apparent even before I was competent at all <laughs> as a really young person. Um, but I just loved the lab environment. So when I, when I went to college and I went to UPenn for college also, um, I had kind of an inkling, maybe I would want to end up in the lab, but I wasn't positive. And then I took, you know, freshman psychology class, um, as, as one does. And, uh, in the psychology class, there was like a chapter on neurobiology mm -hmm. and I loved it. Like I ate it up. I was so excited to learn about <laughs> neurons. I found them fascinating. And I sort of noticed that a lot of the other psych students were like, not thrilled to have to learn biology. <laughs> Yeah. And I like noted that, you know, like, oh, okay, like maybe there's something unique here about my interest, which is, you know, one of the things you're trying to do in college, right? Figure out what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So that was, I just remember that really well as part of the start. And then I was fortunate that Penn had start with starting a neuroscience concentration within the biology major. Mm -hmm. So I got started on that and I joined the lab of Ted Abel. Um, and that experience was you know, just so important to my longevity in the field, I would say. Um, and I worked on learning and memory and behavior and some uh, molecular biology in life uh, in college. So that's kind of the, or the origin story, if you will. Yeah, that's great. I think you had some overlap with my uh, grad PI when you were an undergrad <laughs> in Ted Abel's lab, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, this is a great story. You, uh, emphasizing the word longevity, um, right? So, so uh, Rihanna is referring to Marcelo Wood. Who, it's funny, you know. I was just out at University of California, Irvine, um, where Marcelo is the, the chair of neuro and the director of the Icon. Icon, um, and yeah. So Marcelo was a postdoc in Ted Abel's lab when I was an undergrad, mm -hmm. and now you know Marcelo's chair, and I'm associate professor. And when we see each other. Um, you know, it's just kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, that we're both still here. And we, we both really credit Ted Abel to a lot of our success and sort of like commitment to yeah. neuroscience. Um, it was a really, really excellent training environment. And Ted continues to be a tremendous neuroscientist. And I, I really learned rigor from him. Mm -hmm. um, he's a really rigorous scientist, Ted Abel. And there, you know, it's 
nothing is ever flash in the pan. It's all very, you know, foundations and building and reproducing. And um, that's essential. Um, so I, I think, yeah, Marcelo and I are bonded for life <laughs> as one is, right? Uh, but yeah. No, I love that. Um, so then, so right from this kind of undergraduate experience, you kind of developed an interest in research and decided to then start applying to neuroscience programs for your PhD. How did you kind of start deciding and ultimately select um, Rockefeller? Right. So this is also a TED story. So, <laughs> um, you know, Rockefeller looms large, I think, for all undergraduates as a really special place to train. And it was that way for me, too. And um, so actually, I'm from New York City. And my dad did a PhD and a postdoc and then, you know, sort of left academia, but did his postdoc at Rockefeller. So I went to Rockefeller for the first time as like a two-year-old child. Oh. And I, well, I had these sort of baby memories, you know, mm. real, real early memories of the campus. And that, of course, you know, played a little part in my decision to go there. But mainly, I, I applied to a lot of grad schools. I think the most successful I've ever been in my life has been getting into grad school. That was like the <laughs> moment of perfection. It never was before or after. And I got into all these really great programs. And That's I got great. into Rockefeller. And I got I remember I was in the lab in Ted's lab. It's 19, it's 2002. I'm on a landline because my dad is telling <laughs> me that there's a big envelope from Rockefeller at her house. Oh. And I said, open it, open it. And he opens it. He says, oh, you got in. So I go into Ted's office and I go, Ted, I got into Rockefeller. And he goes, oh, good. So now you're done. You know where you're going. <laughs> I go, I'm like, well, I got into some other really good programs. You know, I'm scheduled to visit, you know, he's like, you can do what you want, but you know, <laughs> so, so there were some influences there. Um, but certainly it actually came down to, um, I was going to work if I, at MIT was another program I was really seriously mm -hmm. considering. And there was a, there's a researcher there called Matt Wilson, who I was fascinated by his work and it was more, um, circuitry and, uh, you know, neuronal activity and vivo electrodes. And that would have been a really different direction because I'm, I'm really a molecular biologist. But so <laughs> I went to Rockefeller and that is sort of part of the story of why I went there. I wish it was more of like there was a researcher there and I really wanted to do what he was doing. I don't have that story. I have this other story of influences in my life, you know, um, and I wanted to get back to New York. I think that was a piece too. my family and friends were there. And um, so, yeah, I went to Rockefeller and I worked with Nat Heinz. Um um, an extremely cool project, um, which I can talk about. I don't want to yeah, no, without I, a break. So. <laughs> no, I think that's great. I think, um, you know, it's really common that people select these kind of like major, help make these major decisions through influences from mentors. And I think that's why it's always so important uh, for people to have good mentors and good influences around them to help make these kind of important decisions. So it's nice to hear that you had people that were helping guide you. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I'd love to hear, you know, how exactly you kind of um, decided on that lab that you chose for your PhD and exactly kind of um, what your dissertation work was on. Okay. Um, yes. So I went to Rockefeller. We, uh, we do rotations there. They're not very formal, but we're, we're encouraged to do them. So 
I had been working with mice in Ted's lab and I'd been doing, you know, these sleep deprivation studies, mm-hmm. which involved me sitting quietly with mice for five to 10 hours at a time. Wow. Um, and I was <laughs> like, you know what, maybe there's another organism that would be a little easier. So I joined um, Ulrika Gall's lab, sadly has, has passed away actually in the past three years, but was mm. a tremendous geneticist. And I joined her fly lab, Drosophila lab. And I was in the lab for my first rotation and I really didn't like working with the flies. So <laughs> again, sort of, you know, I, I tried to get away from the mice, but it really didn't happen. Um, and then my second rotation was with Nat Heinz. And I talked to a lot of faculty about different types of projects and that project was pitched um, to me. And I just, I, I remember sitting in Nat's office and saying to him, this is the only project I want to work on. Hmm. So what was the project? The project was, I used to, can we use genetic tools, genetically modified mice to isolate specific synaptic populations and profile them proteomically? And therefore compare sort of the, the synaptic content of different synapses based on, you know, different based on cell type and, and in this case, like cortical uh, layer. Mm. And I thought that was just fabulous. I mean, it was just so kind of out there, you know, and that, that is a genius and sort of just, you know, creating a new path, forging a new path sort of. Uh, from from not from nowhere, but definitely not iteratively. <laughs> so, you know, I think I I was really excited by that, and and that is a really exciting sci- type of scientist. Um, so it was a hard project, right? I had to make a lot of transgenic <laughs> mice. Um, this was free CRISPR, <laughs> so we made you know we made transgenic mice using back transgenesis, which Nat had also pioneered. Um, and I designed, I think, 12 lines of transgenic wow. mice. And, you know, it's really purifying the, you know, the the construct for the oocyte injections on like cesium chloride columns. I mean, it was really old, like now what you would consider sort of old school. Um, and I was there a long time. <laughs> and this is a, a kind of a, a segue into a, a failure turned into a success. So I'm, I'm just going to share it. Um, the, the point of my thesis was to tag glutamatergic synapses with an uh, AMPA receptor subunit fused to GFP and express that in um, pyramidal neurons across the five layers of the cortex. So we had five different transgenic mice, all of which had this fusion receptor transgene and we were going to then be able to purify these synapses from the different layers of cortex um, using a GFP antibody and cross-linking and a lot of synapse biochemistry and then compare, you know, what's the proteome, con- uh, the synaptic content across the cortex. Except that none of the amperoceptor GFP fusions actually trafficked to the synapse. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I made a lot of mice with green nuclei and, yeah. and, and cytosol. <laughs> um, and it was really, really devastating because it was, you know, it's years, right? To make of those course, yes. <laughs> right. So, okay. I also made one line that was an inhibitory subunit GABA receptor subunit fusion, which was going to serve as a control for one mm-hmm. of the layers of the cortex. That fusion traffic 
beautifully. Mm. And again, I have like a core memory. I can see myself in the hood with my dish of, of, of sections, watching the dab. I mean, we were doing dab for the VFP, watching it appear. I don't know if, you know, anyone that's done a staining with like a precipitate, you know, you, you sort of watch it appear in your, in your neurons, seeing it not in the cytosol. You know, seeing it in a membrane and being like, I'm just having this moment of like, oh my God, I finally have a mouse that I can finish my thesis with. So I ended up characterizing inhibitory synapses at the the, proteome level. Um, But yeah, I just, it was, it's a really distinct memory and sort of, you know, these ups and downs. Fortunately at Rockefeller, we were sort of given unlimited time and funding to finish our dissertation and all of us hung out and stayed on for many many years <laughs> um so that helped you know we weren't we weren't given strict limitations on how much time we could spend mm-hmm. um but yeah so then I that's that's what I did in my thesis that's amazing so how did um is it I guess why was it that the inhibitor the, the GABA receptor subunit was able to traffic yeah. but an AMPA receptor subunit oh, do you have no, it yeah it's looking back <laughs> no it's a great question so the AMPA receptor subunit fusion that we made was really well characterized in neurons in culture like in culture even in um organotypic culture like you could you could tra- they didn't transfect you know, it would be like electroporation into mm-hmm. slices mm-hmm. and it would traffic Hmm. to synapse so we really thought amper you know is glue r1 gfp like there was no reason to think it would have trouble in vivo yeah ultimately we think it was probably that in vitro it was really really highly expressed and so some of it was able to get to the synapse but in vivo you know one of the strengths of the approach was that um these transgenes were under they weren't under endogenous control but they were they were under um no, they weren't. It's medium because it's the back transgenic. So the backs have all of the regulatory information, endogenous regulatory information for driving that gene expression in your target cell population. Mm-hmm. It's not in the endogenous location, right? It's not mm-hmm. quite a knock in, but it is endogenous regula- regulatory. So the levels were sort of naturalistic, which was yeah. our goal. Huh. Yes. Um, we didn't really want to perturb synapses in order to tag them. Yeah. So we kind of think that's why that the the data in vitro was a little bit not artifactual, but it was skewed by the level of expression. Right. Now GABA receptors, <laughs> are they under less control? Yeah. I think from the from my findings, which ultimately when we characterized, I mean characterizing the inhibitory synapse, right? You don't find anything. That was <laughs> the conclusion is what we've known all along. There's no <laughs> PSD, right? There's no mm. protein density there. I did EM. Um, I did EM. That was wow. really cool. <laughs> down at, at, you know, NYU downtown. It's like the subway goes underneath. You kind of have to pause while the, while the scope takes. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's obvious. Visually, it's obvious mm. that excitatory synapses have a ton of material and inhibitory synapses don't. You can see the difference with your own eyes. Mm. So, we kind of concluded that the inhibitory synapses have structural proteins, but not uh, signaling molecules. And that was, you know, the first time anyone had really described it that comprehensively yeah. and in vivo, you know, yeah. 
But that might be why, you know, it's possible that there's just not as much regulatory at the synapse to keep out something like a tagged receptor. Um, mm-hmm. And you maybe you don't need as much. But yeah, I, it's a really good question. Functionally, everything was okay. We did oocyte recordings to make sure that, you know, our tagged receptors work. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot about inhibitory synapse biochemistry, <laughs> unintentionally. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. I feel like I can already now see uh, how you took on all this, like, uh, you know, novel tool development throughout. <laughs> like, oh, I see a beginning here. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Rianne. It's true. And I appreciate you pointing that out because, right, that is supposed to be my narrative, you know, like my narrative, right? You know, early adopter of people with those, you're an early adopter of, of new tools and some tool development. Absolutely. Yeah. That always, and that, that's Matt Hines as well. I mean, he really, so, you know, you mentioned before about how our mentors shape us and definitely Nat is so bold in we, if we want to, ha- if we have a question and we don't have the tool to answer it, we're going to make the tool. Um, and that was just his mode of operation. And, and I watched it and I got to do some of it and for sure it influenced how I operate or try to operate. Um, yeah, we did, <laughs> we did have to make a lot of constructs i learned how to do molecular cloning as a grad student you know a a no longer useful skill but one that was very (laughs) very important for a long time and that served me well throughout you know all of my training um yeah yeah that's great so how did you i guess go from um rockefeller to then transitioning as a postdoc and um going to mount sinai yeah. So, you know, another sort of like Liz doesn't know what she's doing. Serendipitous <laughs> <laughs> happens. Um, so I really didn't have a lot of professional development mentorship at Rockefeller that, you know, they're very focused on basic science, especially back then. And, you know, this kind of part where you network or I, I don't know, none, none of the other things sort of were the focus, at least for me in my lab. And, and I think for many of us. So when it was time to, you know, find a postdoc, I I didn't really have an idea of what to do. So I started to look at labs, um, mostly in New York, but, you know, sort of in the Northeast um, that studied inhibitory synapses, right? I figured, well, this is what I've been studying. So, you know, I'll I'll try to figure out that. And every time I would find a lab, I guess I'm going to call Nat out a little bit here, but it's okay. You know, (laughs) I would bring it to, to Nat and he would say, no, no that's not a a serious enough or rich enough or big enough Mm -hmm. lab or institution. You're not going to be able to do what you want there. Not a good choice. Mm -hmm. There was no follow-up of like, what would be a good choice? (laughs) 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 There was definitely this messaging of like, you're, you know, and he wasn't wrong. I mean, I was used to working in this sort of budgetless, highly innovative atmosphere with Mm -hmm. so many tools and resources and, he, I think his, it was his way of saying, you're going to want to develop tools and you're going to want to do really cutting edge stuff. And without that, you will not be satisfied. So I tried to take it as, you know, uh, encouraging, but mm-hmm. it didn't help me find a lab. <laughs> so this goes on, you know, and then one day we're in a lab meeting in the Heinz lab and Eric Schmidt, who um, was postdoc at the time, who had been at Yale as a PhD student, knows I'm looking for a postdoc and says, oh, you know, Liz, Eric Nessler is moving to New York from um, UT Southwestern and he knew Eric because they had both been at Yale. He said, I think he might be a really good match for you. 
I didn't know who Eric Nestler was, right? Like, this is like me being totally naive and not in the drug addiction field, right? Yes, yeah. Um, but that was the best thing that could have possibly happened to me in my career. I mean, that was that single piece of guidance to try and my ignorance about who Eric was saved me because if I had known, you know, how competitive it was to work with him and what a huge influence he was, I would have been totally intimidated. I had no first author paper at that time. It took me a couple of years into my postdoc to publish my grad paper. We can talk about that story <laughs> of woe, if you'd like. Um, and I probably would have said, no way he's going to take me. But I didn't know anything. So sometimes mm -hmm. not knowing anything, I mean, this is before we use the internet that much. So that helps too, <laughs> I'm sure. It was like, or, you know, it's still 2000s, but I just wouldn't even occur to me to like start Googling someone. I know that's maybe silly, but anyway. That's how I ended up at Eric's lab. It's not a very scientific reason. But once he, you know, Eric Schmidt said that, I looked at the papers, right? I did mm -hmm. look at the papers. And I saw, holy cow, this is molecular biology and behavior. This is me. I mean, it really was because I'd done behavior with Ted and I'd become really strong in molecular neuro with um, Nat. And Eric's papers have that range and it would i mean you know most of us when we start reading the nestler lab uh, literature get pretty excited right because yes, yes. the stories are incredible mm -hmm. um and so it was like oh boy like yeah this feels like a great match for me um and i was really really lucky that eric nestler agreed <laughs> and uh hired me um so that's how i ended up with eric it, it, it was really the like you you said you know tools and molecular biology in my in the brain that mm -hmm. was where I was comfortable I wanted to do molecular biology in vivo and that had carried through maybe that's another theme like from undergrad through grad and moving into postdoc the studies were always in vivo mm -hmm. I really didn't mess around with culture at any point and still now it you know year eight nine of my own lab starting to do some culture work um so that was like a really, really good match for me because I wanted to stay in vivo, but still do mechanism. Um, and he was moving to New York. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things fell into place. Lucky me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's like follow your interests, but also keep your personal life in mind, I think is a good reason mm -hmm. of selecting what you want to do for your yeah. stock. Yeah, um, absolutely. So then how did I guess you start kind of establishing what would be in your main project in your postdoc? Yeah, so um, I think that, you know, Eric had had this, Eric had been, you know, Nessler had been studying um, epigenetic regulation in the brain for a long time uh, at that point, you know, cl closing in on a decade probably since the initial studies. And he, I think, way more than me because you know i hadn't even really thought of much about epigenetics before um so he really had realized at some point that all of our manipulations you know were global and so you know that the nestler lab has focused a lot on this fosb gene and you know made connections to how the histone mods and dna methylation were changing at fosb but all the time those measurements were in the context of like thousands of changes all over the genome. And even though, you know, you could write the paper focusing on, let's say, you know, histone methylation at FOSB gene, and you just sort of didn't talk about the fact that, you know, is this downstream of like one of the other thousands of 
methylation changes on the genome. And that's appropriate. You know, that's where we were at the time. And, and gene-focused work is essential. But I think Eric wanted to take that step further and really prove that, you know, methylation changes, histone methylation was sufficient to regulate a gene. And that's when I entered the lab. And Eric had been in communication with this company called Sangamo, which at the time had developed zinc finger approaches for, um, you know, modifying the epigenome. And I think he saw in me like sort of the person that could finally do this thing that he'd been thinking about, mostly because I could clone. I mean, you know, in order to do these experiments, you had to be able to build a lot of constructs. And that is so much of my thesis work was building these constructs for making the mice. And so I think part of him was like, at the very least, Liz will be able to build all these constructs. And then, <laughs> you know, she can get help with the other stuff that she needs it. Um, and I was way into the project. I mean, the the analogy to what I was doing with Nat, right? It was like, you know, here's this tens of thousands of synapses all in a soup, Let's fish one out and study it. And then the analogy to the gen gen genome level, you know, here are these thousands of changes across the genome. Let's target one in the soup. And so that, I don't know, it just spoke to me as like method development, specificity, mechanism, and new novel. I mean, mm -hmm. that, you know, no one had really attempted this. It was exciting and also essential for me professionally, right? So there's this enormous pressure as a postdoc to really like set yourself up, right? I mean, you know, it's very competitive to get an academic job. And Eric does a tremendous job of placing us. I mean, he's masterful at getting his postdocs into academic positions. And I think part of that is that he can sort of, you know, envision a path to a certain type of success that engenders um, hiring and tenure track. And so, you know, he sort of put the pieces in place for me. I would say like he sort of teed me up mm -hmm. and I had to hit the ball. And, and uh, that's a good, that to me is the right thing to do as a postdoc mentor. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of time to mess around yeah. as a postdoc. You yep. know, you've got a <laughs> short amount of time to make a really big deal discovery. And I don't think it should be that way, but that is the way it is. And so um, I think, you know, it was this combination of Eric's, you know, exceptional genius, really, I really mean that at, you know, seeing what a person's skills are, and setting them up to be successful, mm -hmm. and then providing the environment. So, you know, all of those things came into play. And then at the scientific level, you know, I know I'm being a little long-winded, but I just really adore Eric. So it's hard. No. I get a little long-winded when I talk about him. Um, you know, scientifically, like it was fascinating to me. I mean, once I started to understand and read and learn about chromatin biology, we were getting right to the stuff that I like, which is, you know, transcriptional mechanisms, which is some of what I'd done as an undergrad the machine at the gene, you know, picturing the transcriptional machinery, like really that word machine. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, it's like the stuff of daydreams for me. Like I just find it so endlessly fascinating that the cell can make decisions and, and run the genome in the way that it does. And so um, the, the piece about drug addiction, right? Is like, when is he going to talk about drug addiction? Right now? <laughs> Like, not yet. No, I mean, I really didn't <laughs> think about it that much. I was like coming into this, you know, psychiatry lab 
but I'm totally a basic scientist, right? I was yeah. like in the Rockefeller, you know, you didn't talk about disease. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. different now, but back then, you know, you, you talked about the basics. And so I thought cocaine sounds like a very potent and titratable activator of gene expression that will be a great tool to use as I try to figure out, you know, how the, how the chromatin functions. Yeah. And it stayed there for a while. Um, that's not where it is now, not by a long shot, but that's where it started for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. And so I think, you know, like you said, you really found how to like um, blend both worlds of from your graduate work and from your postdoc to kind of establish what your line of research will really be and, and, you know, potentially your own lab. Is that something that you always had in mind was I'm going to be an academic researcher? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, <laughs> you know, I w- I'm like a nerd, right? I mean, I'm a nerd like from like birth, I'm a nerd, you know, I mean, I'm like a really studious kind of, you know, the kind of kid that like makes the homework for themselves, <laughs> really like loved school you know how I mean I could like really embarrass myself but like you know I had like my own bulletin board in third grade because I was like I did so many projects that no no one assigned me you know I loved it I just couldn't get enough and I I sort of stayed that way throughout my education and and I didn't have pressure you know that was for my parents I mean that was just kind of how I was I was built Mm -hmm. and I had support tons of support a lot of opportunities um well-educated parents, you know, who knew that and a father who had been a PhD and and my mom has several masters. So they knew about academia, they knew about higher education. Um, And then at, at, you know, my undergrad, seeing Ted, okay, like, yeah, I could, I could get into that. That was some role modeling. Yeah. And then at Rockefeller, I mean, at Rockefeller, you don't talk about alternate careers. I mean, right. you know, in the early 2000s at Rockefeller, like, you don't talk about that. I mean, if you're here, it's because you really believe that this is the path and this is important. And, and I already did. And then that just kind of reinforced it. Um, and I was lucky. I had such good role models. I was with these Nat and Eric, you know, at these like peaks of their career, right? Just making it look like so incredible. I didn't join their labs when they were assistant professors and I watched all the pain, you know, I didn't know (laughs) that part, right? I mean, and my experience has actually been relatively pain-free, you know, really, but I, but I, you know, I, I got to see like the best of it, I think. Um, And I'm, I'm just dedicated. I mean, I really felt like you know, there's this interesting conversation about whether we should use the word calling Mm. to describe uh, being an academic researcher. Um, For me, it's an apt term. I I do feel like it's a bit of a calling. And in the sense of like, there are certain things that I always knew I would sacrifice, you know, salary Mm -hmm. for like a really long time, you know, and, (laughs) you know, what personal privileges allow me to make those sacrifices, you know, that's all part of the story. But but definitely for me it feels like a calling and something that I I can't imagine doing something else. Um, that's the truth. I, I love it and even when it's really hard, I'm just gonna keep doing it. I always say like I'll I'm not gonna quit unless they fire me. <laughs> like, why would I fire myself? You know, if I can't do it, someone will fire me, I figure, right? So <laughs> I think that's a good mentality to have. <laughs> um, great. So then, you know, you you saw like you were committed to this path and you ha- saw kind of the project 
that was helping you develop and like um, kind of move forward and excel in this career. Um, how did you kind of then go about transitioning from a postdoc um, to being a PI and then selecting um, or applying, you know, where you wanted to kind of establish your lab? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, you say it like I had so many choices for where I was going to establish <laughs> my lab. <laughs> Um, I didn't. I, I it sort of it sort of came down to Penn. Penn offered me the job, and I applied to like fourteen to twenty places, and I got three interviews. One at Fordham in Manhattan, who did not pursue my my application after my interview, and then Corn while Cornell in New York, and and Penn at at, at Philly, and Penn offered the position first, and Eric was like, for sure, go to Penn. Um, and while Cornell was like a little bit delayed and ultimately I, I chose to come to Penn. So, uh, it was, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous opportunity, right? It's like, you know, you don't need a lot of options if Penn is one of them is, is definitely how I, I felt and continue to feel. Um, but I do think like at this point, like, you know, let's say from the midway point to now of my postdoc to now, like that is where like scientific identity started to really coalesce you know what do i care about in the field of neuroscience um before that it was it was like you know tool development cool projects kind of just like a little bit exploratory but then with eric you know my fascination with chromatin biology really like started to get deepened started to deepen excuse me and um how can you not be fascinated by it i mean if you're sort of interested in transcription and then you finally learn more. I mean, I knew about chromatin. I've gone to college, right? But <laughs> I didn't really know much. Um, it's just my fascination just sort of took flight. And then um, simultaneously learning about the disease of drug addiction, just the, the plight of the patients, the lack of like any therapy. I mean, it just, I, I sort of, you know, I was really getting my education in a deep way and, and it took hold. Um, and I had this tool, right? So I had a platform and I felt confident about my platform. Like, okay, I can do epigenetic editing. That's sort of unique. It seems like people in the field really value it. Um, and that was enough confidence for me. Like I had something that I could identify as uh, special that I could do and that mm -hmm. was valued. And, and I think that really helped me to say, okay, I'm going to try to do this thing called start a lab because at least I have the one thing I know I can do mm -hmm. um and then Penn is just I mean I, I don't know you know it's the kind of place where like it has everything you need I mean and more you know and the seed funding and the salary are high and Philly is not crazy expensive so the lifestyle is very very good um it's close to my hometown but not on top of my parents and in-laws, which, <laughs> you know, valuable. Um, so that was an easy choice. I mean, having the opportunity to go to Penn, there's, there's no consternation there. That's just a, a joy. Um, and then, yeah, really feeling like I had a platform on which to jumpstart the program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of the biology, I started to really when I, once I, you know, the first project that we did with epigenetic editing was with histone methylation, specifically K9 dimethylation. And that's, you know, histone methylation as a promoter of a gene expected to repress that gene's expression. Great. Worked as expected. 
how about like a little build on that? You know, is it enough if cocaine is on board? Can you block the cocaine's activation of this gene? That was like a little more interesting, you know? Okay, well, what does it do like in a context of some neuronal input? Oh, yeah, actually it was sufficient to sort of block even cocaine's ability to activate this gene. So you start to get at this like sufficiency of these histone mods to really interact with with the neuronal signaling. Um, so that was very fascinating. And then I started to think about, okay, that's like one mechanism, you know, methylation. We sort of understand what it does in terms of heterochromatin and repression. What other mechanisms? Like I was like, you know, activating and repressing genes at the promoter is fine, you know, but like what else? What mm-hmm. else? And um, at the time, Jan Fang had, you know, with Eric Nessler and Lee Shen published this I'm sure you've seen this paper, you know, this profiling, you know, 10 histone modifications after cocaine exposure, plus, you know, gene expression analysis. And one of their major conclusions was that alternative splicing was like way more regulated by cocaine than even gene expression was regulated Mm. in terms of like the number of things, number of events. And we were all sort of like, oh, like unexpected. Yeah. this like I guess this is important you know like no one had been thinking about splicing we were only thinking about gene expression and then I got really obsessed with splicing and then you have a whole other machine the spliceosome well how is that being regulated and then Gian and and uh you know and Lee and Eric have sort of put together a conclusion slash hypothesis that maybe some of the histone mods were actually regulating splicing as well as mm-hmm. gene expression. And that was very novel. Like mm-hmm. that's not something you saw anywhere, you know, mm-hmm. chromatin and RNA are different fields, right? More than I even realized at the time. But of course that's what gets me fired up, right? Oh, something really weird that like no one wants to talk about, like, <laughs> let me work on that, you know? Um, <laughs> And that was kind of it. Like, I just thought that that paper, the splicing being so important and this idea that the chromatin could regulate splicing, mm-hmm. that was like, that was enough. I mean, that was enough for me to like write my statements for my jobs, to write my first mm-hmm. grants, to set my first experiments up. Like that was fascinating and continues to be fascinating. Working on an F31 right now with a student, Keegan Crick, who's co-mentored by, you know, an RNA biologist, Kristen Lynch and me, and we're like getting into the mechanisms of these, these interactions. So for, in terms of the science, I feel like it's fine. I finally got on like a clear path of like, what was I going to study? Not just what tools was I going to use and not just one model, but like what actual biology was I going to study? Um, and always in the context of addiction, um, that's a kind of a commitment to, that disease that um, it just deepens and deepens over my, my lifetime. Oh, that's great. And so I guess you kind of touched on it in terms of, you know, mentoring students as you're like, you know, forming your lab and continuing um, it running is um, I guess from maybe some of um, your experiences as a trainee, is there a certain way that you kind of choose to mentor or like how you help a student kind of grow as a scientist? Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, it's the best part (laughs) of the whole thing. It's the best part. I mean, what a privilege. Like I just feel every day lucky. And I tell my team all the time, like here, I mean, 
you know, when when you're at an institution that's accepting grad students, these are students that have excelled pretty much throughout their schooling, usually (laughs) in a pretty competitive environment. And then they choose you to train them. I mean, it's an enormous privilege. Uh, Most of the time, it's also an enormous pleasure. Of course, it's challenging, you know, and I think um, unlike my training where it was like there was you know it was a time in our culture and our society where you know hierarchy and authority were still very important and very like much tenets of our day-to-day life and we're we're breaking that down I think thankfully but so sometimes in that transition you know it's I I didn't have anyone train me the way that I'm training yeah and a lot of my colleagues are (laughs) in that with me um so sometimes it's confusing, you know, where are the lines here? Because I don't just act authoritatively, you know, there's some more inter- interaction and yet I have to boss, right? <laughs> um, so that's a little bit of an aside. That's sort of what's challenging about it. But mostly what's incredible about it is um, just getting to take part in inspiring and honing the training of these students, you know, and postdocs and sort of, again, like Eric's method, you know, assessing the student's strength and, and, you know, they're never weaknesses, but things that are under development and then, you know, developing projects that really, you know, speak to the strengths of the student. Always, I always make sure that, you know, the projects that we design allow a student to thrive early Mm -hmm. um, because building confidence in science, I think, is essential. I think if you ignore that and you just let students fail and fail and fail without, you know, developing their confidence, I don't know that they'll stay and stay in it. I, I think that can yeah. be really not worth not worth it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So so, you know, like Eric did for me, you know, sort of setting them up for success and also building in a lot of challenges. But you know, you don't have to really try with the challenges. The the, the biology will take care of that, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> If you're thoughtful in your projects and they're interesting, you know, the challenges will come, right? Yeah. Because the biology will always surprise slash disappoint you. So um, <laughs> I really do try to play to students' strengths. I try to, I, I do, you know, I have some aspects that are micromanagement, right? Because I, I really believe that students can benefit from learning how to be organized and structured with certain aspects of the career. And I use some specific strategies for that. And, you know, I tell them this is how... I organize our work. Now you'll know how to do it that way. Yeah. You can use it or not, but at least you know how to do it. Um, and, you know, and really making sure that there's a lot of um, uh, collegiality, respect, acceptance in the lab. I take really seriously, you know, how, how folks in the lab comport themselves and, and show respect to each other. And I'm, um, Every time a trainee meets with me at the end of the meeting, every time, how are people treating you in lab? Hmm. Is there any, you know, conflict? Are there any instances of feeling, um, you know, disrespected or, or not, you know, not valued? And they laugh at me because, you know, we're really, really wonderful environment. And they feel like, you know, every meeting she does this like serious like thing. But I just, I don't mess around with that. You know, I think once a student feels that negativity in lab, it can derail them. And so um, I just take that really, really seriously. And I check on it 
like obsessively, I guess they would make fun of me. But um, yeah, but the scientific encouragement and ensuring a really positive environment, um, I think are some tenets of my mentorship. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I haven't heard someone, you know, explicitly ask those kinds of things that I think are necessary, especially for like, for especially young trainees that maybe do feel a certain way, but are nervous to voice it. Um, And so just giving the space is huge. And luckily, you know, you don't find yourself getting, you know, horrible (sighs) answers about it. But I think that's great. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, you know, by making by asking all the time, then the conversation is constantly sort of happening. Yeah. Right. So that then if something comes up, like we've been talking about it in a way, like it's not new territory. And that is my goal. Like you said, you know, creating that space and kind of normalizing those conversations. Cause like, it's going to happen, you know, we're humans, we're emotional, especially about our science. Yeah. Um, And so yeah, I, I appreciate the, the feedback because I, I do want, I do want there to be space for that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, yeah. So I guess, um, coming towards the end as we've rounding out your research career thus far, um, something that we always ask is, um, what you kind of do outside of lab, um, what kind of fulfills you in other ways, I guess, too. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So you can't see me, but Rianne, you saw me before sitting in my garden. So um, I'm very fortunate to have a house in Philadelphia that has a big garden. And I was not a gardener before I bought this house. And then I became one because I can afford the house with the garden, but not the gardener. Yeah. <laughs> so now, you know, it's my work, but it's actually it's wonderful. It's really, you know, the, the garden has, you know, 30 different species of plants and it, it's rather large wow. and it's a lot of work, but um, really, really good work, physically good and, and mentally good. And um, I'm often like out here sort of listening to something on my headphone, even like a seminar while I kind of prune. Um, so that's one of my, now I'm a gardener, you know, <laughs> that's one of my major hobbies, my husband and I together. And I have a family. So I have a husband who's an architect and two kids, um, uh, eight and and four. Mm. Uh, so that I would say between the garden and the family, you know, <laughs> that's my primary occupations outside of the lab. Um, I also, uh, you know, I have an extended family up in New York. We're really close. I see them often and, and visit with them. I'm fortunate that, you know, both my parents are alive and, and my husband's parents as well. Um, and then the last thing I, I would like to mention, you know, actually I'm, I'm observant in my religion. I'm Jewish and um, I, I belong to a really wonderful synagogue right here, like around the corner from my house. But, you know, if you are observant, having a, a nearby worship, a place to worship really helps. Um, and it's a wonderful community. And one of the things that observant Jews might do is observe Shabbat. And I'm, I wasn't, I didn't know I would say this, but Rianne, I think it's, it's something that's valuable because what Shabbat means for me is that like I come home on Friday, I turn off my phone Mm. and I don't turn it on again until Saturday night. Mm. And, you know, in this age of mindfulness and digital awareness, you know, actually Shabbat sort of has some of that built in. Um, And even if I don't go to synagogue, although I, I often do, but even if I don't, I really separate from 
my phone, which is, I joke like my phone is my boss. Basically. <laughs> I don't have a direct boss, but my phone is certainly my boss. Everywhere I'm supposed to be, my phone is telling me and all my tasks or my phone is telling me, alerting me. Um, so that's something about me that I think maybe people don't know that um, is really important to me and I think really helps me as a person and as a scientist because I, I take that break. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. I love those answers. Thank you so much. Um, it's great talking with you um, and look forward to seeing you hopefully in the near future. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rianne. This was really a pleasure. And um, it, it's uh, it's wonderful to be in the company of the other women in neuroscience. I've been enjoying listening to their stories as well. So um, really a pleasure. And, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.